Finance and History. The EABH Podcast. Looking for precedents from the exciting world of financial history. Follow us on bankinghistory.org. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Finance and History, the podcast of the European Association for Banking and Financial History, EABH. My name is Carmen Hofmann and my guest today is Edgar Walk. Edgar works as Chief Economist at the Asset Management Division of Bankhaus Metzler. Welcome, Edgar. In brief, what are we going to talk about today, Edgar? The idea is to talk about the history of economic thought, the different uh, schools in economic theory. It helped me along the way. I'm working for more than 23 years now in financial markets. We had different crises and different ideas, different concepts to think about the economy where necessary. And I think it's quite interesting to talk about this. It indeed is. It's always interesting to hear a practitioner's experience or what, what you have learned along the way of working in financial markets. So we're very happy to have you. You work for Bankhouse Metzler. So we have talked about the history of Metzler Bank, one of the most historic private banks worldwide in a previous episode of this cast. So We're not talking about the bank's history today, but we are going to speak about financial history and why it matters for executives like yourself in the financial sector. Why do you think, Edgar, financial history matters? I think because our economic system is cyclical. This means we have economic cycles, which have a duration of between five and 15 years. We have debt cycles, which have a duration of 60 to 100 years. We have political cycles. And cycles means that in the past, financial markets, the economy had probably very similar problems, similar challenges as today. And we can learn from the past uh, for our challenges uh, for today. And that's why I think it's so important to have very good insights into financial history. I couldn't agree more. There's always patterns we can look at if we look back. When you started your career in the financial sector in the early 2000s. Were you prepared for the real world of finance when you arrived fresh from university? At least I thought I'm very well prepared. I learned only neoclassical theory, the idea that we have the best economic system ever, that all the problems we see in the real world are due to government interventions in the economy. So if the government would intervene less in the economy, the system would work even better. That was the idea. We had the assumption of rational investors, rational economic actors, and we had the idea of market efficiency. Clearly, you can ask me, why did you go to the financial sector if you believed in efficient markets? But I think there was a very important uh, theoretical contribution which showed that if acquiring information is costly, then also active manager can make a contribution to financial markets. And I thought I'm very well prepared, but that actually didn't turn out in the following years. Yeah, it's true. I mean, neoclassical economics is still one of the most dominant frameworks for understanding economic behavior and But it faces evolving challenges we're going to talk about later on and critiques in, in the modern world because it focuses so much on rationality and market efficiency and is increasingly being scrutinized in light of behavioral economics. So the early 2000s were the years of the dot-com bubble or the years when the dot-com bubble burst. It was also known as the internet bubble and it was a speculative frenzy in the late 1990s and early 2000s. 
where the stock prices of many interest-based companies soared to unsustainable levels, was driven by excessive investor optimism and the belief in the limitless potential of the internet. Eventually, this bubble burst in 2000 and led to a sharp decline in the stock market, particularly affecting technology and internet-related stocks, as many of these companies were overvalued and lacked sustainable business models, resulting in significant and financial losses for investors. It took many by surprise because the rapid growth of internet-related companies was seen as a transformative or even revolutionary force in the economy. Did the bubble take you by surprise or were you part of the small group that had warned about it beforehand? I started in, in July 2000. And before I started my job, I actually read the book of Robert Schiller, Irrational Exuberance. And I think he very convincingly showed that we probably have a bubble. And I used this as my framework at that time, but I was still a very young economist and nobody listened to me. So to some extent, I was lucky that I probably was worried about a bubble. But my fellow colleagues at that time, they were working already for 10, 20 years in financial markets. And the problem is already in 1995, there were the first discussions, is the stock market a bubble? And if you would have listened in 1995 and said, okay, I don't invest in technology companies anymore or I don't invest in the stock market, you would have underperformed dramatically in 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. And that you cannot survive in financial markets with such a long underperformance. So I think my colleagues were also to some extent aware that maybe valuations of stocks are very high. But um, as the previous years showed that it's extremely dangerous to focus only on valuations. That's why I think it was so difficult for so many participants in financial markets to make the call that it's a bubble and it will burst. As I mentioned, there was so much discussion in the years ahead and everybody who was skeptical was already out of the market and lost a lot of money. And uh, I think that's a very important experience also for me. Even if I have the feeling that maybe it's a bubble or it's exuberance or overextended, it can go on for much longer than everybody believes. It sounds a lot like a question of a very good timing. I mean, you mentioned Robert Chill. He wasn't the only one. There were other people as well. Warren Buffett, I think he yeah. he warned that it's a bubble as well as Alan Greenspan. But then, as you say, when when is the point to get off the exuberant train, right? But yet still, I mean, there were many historic precedents for the dot-com bubble, like a 17th century or the South Sea bubble, um, which took place in Britain in the early 18th century, where it involved the trading of shares in the South Sea company, prices surged to unsustainable heights, and then the bubble burst in 1720. Same went for the Mississippi bubble, the railway mania in Britain in the 1840s, or the Roaring Twenties in the United States that saw a stock market bubble fueled by excessive speculation and easy credit. So did you draw on any of these historic precedents when you were thinking of the dot-com bubble? or Actually not. I think uh, at the time there was a consensus that in previous time this bubble were driven by a bad understanding of economics. The idea was in 99 and 2000 that this time is different. We are superior in managing the economy 
compared to previous times. That's interesting. You mentioned this famous quote of Reinhard in Ragov that this time is different. I mean, yeah. that comes in a very cyclical way as well. So do you think AI is the next bubble to come? It's extremely difficult in real time to make the judgment if some asset prices are in a bubble or not. But when I look at AI-related stocks in the US, uh, valuations are way, way high at the moment. So I think it's a higher than 50% probability that these stocks are probably in a bubble. Thanks for sharing this, this insight with us. You said in preparation to our talk that economics has evolved a lot towards getting away from models and taking behavioral parts and psychology much more into account and going away from the idea that we all act rationally as individuals and as a society. So that goes actually for both the macro the micro level as well sorry just to interrupt uh, because i think it's a very important point the bursting of the bubble in 2000 was not a classical bursting because we didn't have so much credit growth in the years before um, the bubble burst i think we also didn't have very loose monetary policy uh, at the time so i think it really was driven by irrationality And after 2000, I think there was a lot of interest in behavioral economics. But my feeling is at the end of the day, it's interesting to talk about behavioral economics. Uh, but my understanding, my feeling is that behavioral economics doesn't play any big role anymore today. There is a huge part of your colleagues that argue that bubbles are just a natural part of the cycle. And then we have yeah. to accept that it's more about the extent to which they spread. So that leads me basically for taking my next question away because I wanted to ask you if you know that there's this US TV series called Billions. It was um, very popular a few years ago and there's um, a hedge fund manager in, in the US, Axel Roth is his name. And I mean, his main aim is to make money and to outmaneuver um, the US attorney on the other side. So the classical setup of two people um, against each other. And there is um, one very interesting character. There is Wendy Rhodes, who's the company psychiatrist actually and performance coach and um, her contribution to the company success is invaluable so um, I was wondering um, following your comments about the behavioral part of economics if Metzler Bank has a company psychologist <laughs> no maybe we need one the short-term price movement in financial markets are very much driven by psychology Basically, what you need is a framework or a model where you can systematically use behavioral insights to make uh, decisions how to allocate stocks or which stocks or, or how to allocate the bonds. But I haven't seen any model or approach yet which uses the information or the insights from behavioral finance to build this kind of systematic framework. I think it's very, very difficult to use the insights in a systematic framework for financial markets. But maybe it will change in the future. So I'm open and we will see. Right. There's still room for more insights. So let's move on a little bit in, in time. Let's go to the years starting with 2008, the period called the Great Financial Crisis, a global banking and financial system meltdown occurred. It was triggered by a housing market collapse and widespread mortgage defaults. The interconnectedness of financial institutions resulted in severe economic downturns worldwide. 
According to neoclassical theory, however, this crisis was unexpected because it assumed that financial markets were efficient and self-regulating. How did you at Metzler Bank fare through the crisis? And did you do something different that time after your experience during the dot-com bubble? Bankhaus Metzler is a relatively small bank, privately owned. And for the owning family, it was always clear that Bankhaus Metzler will never be bailed out by the government. So our philosophy is to be extremely conservative. Also, I think the experience of the dot-com bubble showed that there could be excesses in financial markets. And that's why we didn't have any toxic securities in our bank portfolio or in the portfolio of our clients. So basically, Bankhaus Metzler didn't have any problems in 2008, 2009. The management at the time was very successful in managing the bank and our client portfolios. But in the years before, everybody thought that Bankhaus Metzler is very old-fashioned and um, we don't understand the new times, the new opportunities. So it was also a very difficult time in the boom years until 2008. The management kept course and stayed conservative and it paid to be conservative in 2008, 2009. Yeah, we, next year, we will celebrate 350 year anniversary. So the bank has experienced a lot of financial crisis. Our owner, Friedrich von Metzer, he said 2008, 2009 was a crisis, but not very difficult, uh, luckily for our bank. For the bank, it was very difficult under Napoleon. Well, that does actually make for a very good slogan, right? Ten years ago, it was difficult, but under Napoleon, that is when it was really difficult. <laughs> so that's a very good way of giving perspective to business, right? Because that is what history does. It doesn't always give you the right solution or, or a manual on what to do, but it gives you perspective and um, you can justify the way in which you invest long-term. You mentioned as well a preference you have at the moment for what you call Austrian theory of economics. Would you like to tell us a bit more? At the center of this Austrian theory is the financial system. Yeah, the idea is you have a neutral interest rate, and if the interest rate is below the neutral interest rate, You get excessive credit growth, you get an upturn, which could lead to excessive credit growth, excessive building in the economy, like excessive house building and a financial crisis. So actually, the Austrian theory is the only theory can explain bubbles, crashes, because it has at, at its center the financial system. There are two possible sources for the excessive credit growth. One is monetary policy, if interest rates are too low. And the other is the financial system. So if there is exuberance in the financial system, you have this excesses in, in the real economy. After the uh, dot-com bubble burst, interest rates were cut to 1% in the US, 2% in the euro area. Probably monetary policy was too easy. That was one of the reasons why we got excessive credit growth and the overbuilding in the housing sector in, in the United States, in Spain, Ireland and other countries. But also I think the financial sector was an excessive risk taker at the time. And the combination of both led to this crisis. The Austrian theory also predicts the overbuilding in the housing market and also predicts that it will take a very long time to clear these excesses, what we have also seen after the financial crisis. So I think the Austrian theory, it's really a framework to better understand 
the risks to financial systems, to economies. And I think I would like to add one more point. In September 2008, so when Lehman declared bankruptcy, there was huge turbulences in the financial markets. And at that time, suddenly people started to talk about the Minsky moment. And uh, everybody wanted to buy the book of Hyman Minsky, Stabilizing an Unstable Economy was, I think, the title of the book. And the idea of Minsky is that in our system, there can never be stability. If you have a long period of stability, uh, according to Minsky, financing becomes more and more risky yeah, because it pays to leverage up. Uh, you can earn more money in, in stable times. But because financing gets more and more risky, the risk of a financial crisis increases and the, the cycle turns around. And I think that was also a very important insight. And Minsky is um, basically in the tradition of Keynes. There are a lot of different Keynesians, and I think Minsky is very close to the original ideas of Keynes. I think when I look at China today, uh, I see that we have very similar situation to 2007, 2008, but with one huge difference. In China, the financial system is under control of the government. So it's impossible that banks start to mistrust each other, like we have seen in 2008, 2009. So the, the interbanking market basically came to a still stand in 2008, in September. Uh, banks uh, didn't provide any credits, any uh, loans anymore to the real economy uh, because of uh, the misfunctioning of the money market. But we will not see a huge financial crisis in China. It's impossible because this, the government will keep the bank stable. It will keep the interbanking mark sta market stable. But clearly, we have the overbuilding in China in the real estate market. So we will have a period of five, 10 years in China with very low GDP growth because the real estate sector has to become smaller and this will uh, cost GDP growth. So it will be more like a stagnationary environment like in Japan. But I think you get an idea that the economic framework I learned helps me today to make good forecasts or better forecasts than I made in the past. It's a very good argument for using... Um different frameworks and as well different historic experiences as tools for uh, making good business today. I thought about this as well because we're moving forward to the period closer to today, right? From 2010 onwards, we were in this um, low inflation environment and the zero negative interest rates. And I remember when I first started doing this podcast, this was the reality and everybody was very, very worried how, what would happen if we would have this forever, right? If it would be like this for like the rest of our existence, at least. But then the period stopped and there came the pandemic and high inflation. And as well, these discussions you started to mention between how much and how far should governments interfere and how liberal and how neoclassical and should the economy be. They have been ongoing ever since the years 2008. And with some sort of consensus being there now or during the pandemic that governments should intervene, which of course brings Keynesian economics to the top of every discussion, right? Because his ideas laid the foundation for modern macroeconomic theory and influenced policy during the 20th century, particularly during times of economic crisis. So 
how how do you judge that? Is Keynes the one we take out whenever there's a crisis? Is that a good thing to do? If policymakers are faced with a crisis, they will always react and do something to stop the crisis and uh, stabilize the economies. And I think it's always the right thing to do because if policymakers wouldn't do anything, I think the crisis would get worse and worse and worse and there would be no natural stabilizing tendencies in the economy. That was also the understanding of Keynes. So I think it's the right decision. And also, when I look at neoclassical theory, uh, the idea is that interest rates have a very strong effect on the economy. And also, after interest rates were cut to 0% or minus 0.5% in the euro area, I think according to neoclassical theory, you should have expected a very strong upturn in investment spending because of very low interest rates. But that uh, we didn't see, actually. And we have the experience of Japan in the 1990s, 2000s, also with a very long period of zero interest rates, but no upturn in investment spending or no decrease in, in savings of private households, which should be expected according to neoclassical theory. And I think also here we have to look at Keynes, the paradox of thrift, the idea that maybe due to damaged balance sheets, companies start to save money to pay down debt. Also consumers are feeling uncertain about the future in this environment. They also save more despite very low interest rates. And this has a very negative influence on the economy. You only get stagnation, very low inflation or even deflation like in Japan. And this can continue for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I think that was the idea at that time. That's why I think a lot of people at the time also feared that our zero or negative interest rate period could um, extend very far into the future like in Japan. But then the pandemic happened. And as you mentioned, governments intervened very strongly. The money spent by governments was obviously enough to kickstart the economy, which created strong nominal growth and made it possible to, to hike interest rates or get interest rates back to a more noble level again. And also for me, I think this was this year one of the biggest surprises. I thought that the European economy and the US economy are not strong enough to withstand these higher interest rates. But both economies have been so far uh, surprisingly resilient to the higher interest rates. And I think it's a very good sign. If they can remain resilient, then probably we have good chances that interest rates will remain at more normal levels uh, going forward. That's the big question ahead. Even though it sounds a bit like you made it sound as if the pandemic was the right economic stimulus for interest rates to go up. We had also this stagnation, deflationary environment until the Second World War. And a lot of economists or financial historians say the Second World War, especially the huge government spending at the time, created an environment where nominal GDP growth accelerated very sharply. And this was a trigger to get out of this stagnation, deflationary environment of the 1930s. So actually, there's uh, maybe a historical example, because also the money spent in the pandemic was very similar what countries spent during war, war periods. Maybe there are some comparisons to, to be made. It's very detached to look at it this way. 
you said something interesting about the high money supply growth ahead of the inflation and how it helped you to forecast the high risk of higher inflation and that you dived into monetarism and the analysis of money supply as a consequence. Tell us a bit more about this. In the year 2021, we saw that money supply was starting to go or accelerate very sharply in the US and Europe. I talked with my colleague who has 40 years experience in financial markets and he became very worried about this high money supply growth because he said it was driven by fiscal stimulus. So a lot of money at the account, bank accounts of companies and private households. If the lockdowns are eased, probably companies and private households will spend this money and um, will accept also higher prices. And so he was very worried about uh, inflation starting to accelerate in 2022. I was skeptical at the time because I was still in the framework of Japan uh, with low inflation stagnation. But um, I think the discussions helped me a lot. And um, actually, we also prepared in some portfolios uh, for this where it was possible. Then I looked more closely also in monetarism, in money supply. And um, I think there's also now some research from the BIS, which showed that money supply was very helpful in forecasting inflation. Also, Isabel Schnabel made recently a speech about this relationship between money supply and inflation. So monetarism is coming back in economic thinking and forecasting, um, which I find very interesting. It has been like an old-fashioned idea for a while as well, but... As many others, you are advocating as well for a focus on monetary policy and particularly the control of the money stock, right, as a, as a primary tool for economic management. Is that one of your conclusions? What do you think is good economic theory? And um, do we have to start economics from scratch? I recently talked with a professor, he's an um, economics professor, and he says, we are still teaching at universities only in the neoclassical theory because we can mathematically model it. And what we cannot model, we don't teach. I understand the approach because mathematical modeling makes the arguments, the relationships very clear and very open, very transparent. But my experience tells me that the neoclassical theory is a theory which doesn't help in the real world and doesn't help to survive in financial markets. That's why it, I think it makes a lot of sense to get an idea about other frameworks like Austrian school, like monetarism, like the original Keynesian theory, I would argue. But also, I think even more important is financial history uh, because we have the cycles and um, what we experience today probably to some extent has already happened in the past. And so, so if you study economics at university, you should take part in financial history. And also there should be courses about alternative thinking like Austrian school, like monetarism, so that students get a better understanding. And maybe in the future, they will also be able to model these other ideas and maybe incorporate it into the current models. My feeling is that students are not very well prepared for the real world when they get out of university. Perhaps the financial sector as well could offer a bit more openness for people that have potentially graduated in different topics and still value mm -hmm. the experience and what it could bring to doing successful business. And I think history has shown that people of different backgrounds did do successful business. So last question. 
What are you reading at the moment? And is there a financial history book you would like to recommend? At the moment, I'm reading a book about the gold standard, Bitcoin standard and fiat standard from Professor White. And I'm surprised that he recommends the gold standard. He has some good arguments, but I'm not fully convinced. But it's a very interesting book. What I recommend is Ray Dalio. He's a hedge fund manager in the US. The Big Debt Crisis is one of his books and the other is New World Order. I had that as well. That's a great book. In the Big Debt Crisis, he uses financial history data of the last up to 200 years to look at crisis, at the pattern of crisis. And I think he was very successful with his hedge fund because he doesn't use much economic theory. He usually looks at financial history and he was extremely successful with this approach. And a second book I would recommend is Lords of Finance by Liaquad Ahmed. It's about central banks in the interwar period. This would be my two or three suggestions for financial history books. The Lords of Finance. So I'm asking everybody this, this question at the end. And that's yeah. by far the one most recommended. I have bought the Ray Dalio as one, the changing world order. I think that's, that's a very interesting take. I have to remember where I got this from, but... I was reading about this craft of how we take decisions. You mentioned a lot your experience and the intuition mm -hmm. and the way in which we can react to things we need to react quickly to. And that this is one of the most underrated traits in our current time, how we consider experience, because we look a lot of things that we learned in a strategic way, following a theory, going to school, having an exam, but all this what makes intuition and, and enables you to take decisions. These are many small experiences that you collect as a human being and that the brain is able to then draw on them, even if you might not be able to actually say precisely why you know that or why you, you act in a certain way. And I think it makes a point for financial history as well. If we as actors in, in the system, we read about cases and we know about how different things unfolded in the past in many different environments, I think that can be very helpful when it comes to present day decision making. So thank you very much, Edgar, for taking the time to talk to us about your experience in the financial sector. This was Finance and History, the EABH podcast. EABH is an independent, international, non-for-profit organization that promotes research into the history of finance, policy making and the archives. Please join us as a member in order to support our work. You can find details online at bankinghistory.org.